The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. This morning we have the privilege of hearing uh, from Matt Yusey, who is currently the senior pastor of Trinity Church in central Oahu. So he comes to us from Hawaii. He's been there as pastor for three years prior to that, ministering in different PCA churches in Philadelphia and Seattle. He's here today uh, not only to speak in chapel, but to also introduce different church planting as well as ministry opportunities in on the Hawaiian Islands. So he's here representing the PCA churches there. So it's a delight to have you here, Matt. Please bring us God's word. Thank you for having me. This is my third time here. So for you who are in your fourth year studying here, this is your third time to see a man with a proper aloha shirt. So <laughs> welcome back. Uh, yeah, we have... Julius and I were talking about it. I think we have five Westminster grads currently working on island. I met uh, the fifth one. Well, Paul Schuler, pastor in Honolulu, PCA Church in Honolulu, graduated from here. John Kim, our RUF campus minister, uh, graduated from there. And uh, Connieella Hughes graduated just a couple years ago. And I met a man named Buster on Sunday who was a, uh, a graduate of here. And he's a, he is a Navy chaplain stationed on island. So he's been with us the last two Sundays. Does that ring a bell? There's a buster. It can't be many, right? Okay, well, uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn them to, uh, to Mark chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 38 through 44. This passage is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of Mark. As you know, Jesus came primarily as a preacher and a teacher to Israel, and that teaching was occasionally accompanied by signs and miracles, but no more after this. No more sermons in the synagogue, no more questions from opponents, no more displays in the temple. All that is left is his private teachings to his disciples during the last few days of his life. Let's hear it together. Mark 12 38 through 44, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is God's word. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and of the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God stand forever. Amen. It's been said that fear and pride are the opposite sides of the same coin. Fear and pride being the sinful fleshly motivations which lie beneath the sins we commit, the sin behind the sin, as it is said. And these motivations, both fear and pride, are addressed directly in the salvation that Jesus brings. Think about it. 
How many of our sins proceed from hearts reflecting these things? Anger, greed, lust, hatred, gossip, indifference, hypocrisy. How many of these arise from us thinking too highly of ourselves and wanting to promote our names or us being afraid of the future and wanting to control it? On our story this morning, we find a man who is proud, though he shouldn't be, and a woman who, worldly speaking, should be gripped by fear, but remarkably shows she is not. And Jesus, the master teacher, will show us how to understand and apply this. How is it that we are to avoid giving in to pride and hypocrisy? How is it that we keep from fear and despondency? Well, the answer for us this morning is this, that we are to value Jesus Christ more than anything in the world. To view him and having him as being of more worth than anything in creation. Now there's a lot going on here in this short passage. There are issues of wealth and hypocrisy, of public, public religion and pride, of generosity, widowhood, mercy, and of eternal inheritance. But the thread that ties them together is that God loves, demands, and works masterfully in the hearts of his people. And this calling to discipleship is not merely a matter of doing good things he wants us to do, but of loving and desiring him. And the way we treat money reveals what is in the heart. It reveals our love. Now the Lord had just been asked what the greatest commandments was in the passage before this, and he answered that the greatest commandment was to love God and neighbor with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here, Mark would have us behold this scene to comprehend what that love means. And so we're going to briefly consider this morning uh, that God's valuation of wealth is not in dollars and cents, but in sincerity of heart. Um, Here we find counterfeit rewards which seem real and true rewards which seem worthless. Very briefly, counterfeit rewards which seem real. It's hard to get our mind's eye around what the scene must have been for the Lord Jesus and his disciples on that day in the temple. It was filled with people and activity, most likely to a greater and more peculiar degree than any modern comparison. Jerusalem at the time had about 50,000 residents, but some 200,000 pilgrims visited during festival times. Josephus wrote that during one Passover week, some 250,000 lambs were sold and prepared and sacrificed in the temple area. 250,000 in a week. And it seems that the Lord Jesus was people watching in the holiest of senses and teaching his audience eternal truths with those people being living illustrations. In verse 38, he says to beware of the scribes who paraded themselves around. The scribes, of course, were the official interpreters of the Old Testament. They were experts in handling written documents in teaching and interpreting and regulating the law of God. As Julius mentioned, I've been blessed to serve in several different areas of the country, and it's interesting to me how differently people in those different regions respond to me when they hear that I'm a pastor. If I happen along someone and they hear I'm a pastor. Now, this is anecdotal, so it's not infallible, but this is my, uh, this is my summation. This is my stereotyping of people. In the Northeast, people react as if I'm of a different species, unable to relate to them, assuming I'm ignorant on how the real world works. In the South, people are immediately affirming, oh, that's great, good for you, bless your heart. (laughs) 
I was ordained in the Pacific Northwest, and as I understand it, my good friend Michael Kelly will be here next week to talk to you about ministry there. Please receive him well. He's a good man. It's a great place. But in the Northwest, people are suspicious. What is a pastor? How is that a thing? It's unknown. In Hawaii, there's a general sense of respect and reverence. Even people who have never been to church, who would never perhaps go to church, when they hear that I'm a pastor, show respect. They insist from then on to call me pastor. And on the surface, they, uh, they value my opinion. But though these places have been different, and though this is anecdotal, what I have found to be remarkable is how, after finding out I'm a pastor, they all respond basically with the same thing. After their initial responses, they move on to the list of good deeds that they've done or that they're trying to do. Whether it's ministries they're a part of or how they try to be good while surrounded by bad influences at work and in the world, the default mode seems to be that what is most appropriate at that moment is to to display how one has earned the right to be accepted by his behavior. It's fascinating. Well, the scribes did this proactively, professionally, didn't they? They strutted about like peacocks in their religious clothes. They loved being recognized and received and receiving benefits from their office. It fed their vanity. They prayed in such a way that people knew they did it for a living. And Jesus here sums up their ministry by saying that, that it existed for them to be noticed. He says very plainly that they are hypocrites. Their religion was not one out of love for God, but of love for themselves. It was an affront to God and his grace. And the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh saw it and called it what it is. These counterfeit rewards they are seeking, rooted in pride, were in fact doing them great harm. They were receiving a false sense of security by them. When you read this description of hypocrisy given by our Lord, perhaps the first picture that comes to mind is of prosperity preachers in the modern day, right? Those who say God wants you to be physically healthy and materially wealthy, and the way of gaining such a life is to give to their ministry. You do these things and just you wait, great blessings will flow. Now, to be sure, more th- few things in this life get me and probably you more angry than those false teachers. Jesus says that such people will be paying for the mishandling of the word for all eternity, that they will receive a greater condemnation. We cannot comprehend that, nor necessarily should we focus on it. But what is interesting is that the scribes that Jesus mentions here were not of the wealthiest of Israel. Jesus had already rubbed elbows with the Herodians and the Sadducees, both at a higher class than the Pharisees. Pharisees and their scribes were but middle class. They studied and worked. They were not of the financial elite. This reveals what is plain in the whole teaching of Scripture regarding money. It is not the presence of it that is sinful and condemning or the amount of it, but the love of it. Remember, fear and pride are the motivations on display here. You can be proud of your money while having little of it, and you can't. And your life can be gripped by fear while having lots of it, and vice versa. The amount isn't the issue. The heart is the issue. And the counterfeit reward, which seems real, can come in any quantity. So after that, the Lord shows us true rewards which may seem worthless. So I'm going to read verses 41 through 44 again. 
and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they, are all, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In the temple area known as the Court of Women, there were 13 huge treasury receptacles shaped like trumpets and made of brass in the second temple. In them, the people would put in their coins as offering. They would be used to purchase things like incense and burn offerings, as well as pay for the expenses of the temple. It was a loud affair, as you can imagine. And the bigger the amount, the larger the coin, the larger and louder the sound. But Jesus, it would seem, heard two small coins, two tiny sounds. And knowing her heart and loving her intimately, he reveals the truth about her offering, that it is louder than any other made that day in the true treasury of heaven. This treasury received a massive deposit that day, though seemingly worthless to the watching world because it was given in faith. These two small copper coins were leptus, the smallest Jewish coin in circulation. And by my calculations, which are poor, she put in what a poor laborer would be paid for for 10 minutes of work in a day. Yet, we are told by Jesus it was all she had to live on, and it was worth more than all the others that day. I think there's a freeing and humbling and crystallizing principle that seems very obvious, but maybe forgotten. And that is this, God does not need your money at all. In fact, he does not need your obedience, nor does he need your time. They do not add to his person, his deity, his reign, his glory does not affect theology proper. They do nothing for him, and yet he demands them. Why? Well, long answer, but very shortly. Because he loves you. And he wants you to grow in his love. Or to put it another way, he wants you to make the most valuable thing there is to be him. He wants you to value him more than all else. He means to sanctify you all of your lives, you see. And a great stumbling block is the love of money. And though it's not the main point of this teaching, it is indeed a plain application of this text that we are to be a generous people. That our giving to God and in his name to those in need is to be a thing that we do genuinely and regularly and not only out of our abundance. That our money is not really ours, that we are to be stewards of it, for it was lent by God to use for his glory. And though it's not a highlight of pastoral ministry, I've not, never met a pastor who really loves talking about money, who really loves admonishing his people to give faithfully and sacrificially, it must be said that that is the job of the pastor. Not, of course, only to talk about money, but when the text calls for it, to tell his congregation that God loves them and that money will get in the way of them growing in that love. And the promise this admonition rests upon is that God loves them and that he will keep them forever through the abundance of his grace. 
It's good for us to ask ourselves regularly, do we really believe that when looking at money? Do we believe that God loves us so much that he does not want our fears to be shaken for one moment or our confidence in him for a second to depend upon our bank statement? Rather, he wants you to love him, to be comforted by his word and his promises, and to be freed from the weight of fretting over money. This is a small sampling of how the Bible treats money. Just listen to it. No commentary on it. Just hear it and receive it. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Haggai 2, 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you were not your own for you were bought with a price. Deuteronomy 8, 18, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Psalm 10, 3, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Proverbs 1, 19, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Finally, Psalm 37, 25, King David wrote, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Back to the widow, the one who made this giant deposit into the storehouse of heaven. The value that the Lord Jesus placed on our gift is not meant to make us think, wow, I only need to give two pennies and the Lord can do a lot with it. Rather, it is to make you think, truly the Lord cares so much about my heart, so much more about my heart than I ever imagined. I ought to value the things of faith far more than I do. I ought to long to see my children love God far more than I long for them to get good grades. I ought to long for a humble spirit so much more than I long for a raise or for praise from mere men. It's been said that fear and pride are the opposite sides of the same coin. Fear and pride being sinful, fleshly motivations. In our story this morning, we found a man who is proud though he shouldn't be, and a woman who should be in fear but amazingly shows that she is not. Jesus condemns the one and exalts the other. But of course, as we conclude, there's more going on here. In these two people, Jesus sees himself and he sees his mission, the one that brought him to the temple that day. You see, Jesus was the Lord who had dwelled from ancient of days in his holy temple, in his heavenly one. He is the one who Isaiah saw and fell prostrate before, whose train of his robe filled the temple. He is the one who is seated in the ultimate seat of honor at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who is reigning from there even now. But what sent Jesus to Jerusalem that fateful Passover week some two millennia ago was that his people's sins needed atonement and only he could bring it. And so he would become poor. He would become discarded, executed outside of the city. He would offer a sacrifice to God, one seemingly worthless, no money at all, only blood. But that would be the sacrifice whose ringing would change history. His would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, for he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. As Peter wrote, you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And that offering was received by the Father as a fitting payment for you forever. Isaiah would sing his song of the suffering servant centuries beforehand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Don't live a life defined by fear and pride. It comes in many shapes and sizes, friends. Don't be defined by and driven by material wealth or security. At whatever level God calls you to live at, proceed forward in ministry likewise. See and preach Christ crucified as the most valuable thing in the world. See him as marvelous in your eyes. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.